Please turn in your Bibles with me to the book of Malachi. Malachi is the last book in the Old Testament. It is the last uh, book right there before Matthew. So if you get to Matthew, you're just a couple pages from Malachi. And we are in Malachi chapter 1 today. And we are looking at an oracle that God gave through Malachi to the people of Israel who had returned from the exile, had returned to Babylon. Uh, The book of Malachi is probably contemporary with Ezra and Nehemiah, or at least the generation after them, because he deals with a lot of the same issues throughout his book that Ezra and Nehemiah struggled with the people of Israel after they returned to Jerusalem, to Judah, Uh, from captivity in Babylon. But today we are looking at the first oracle that God gives, or the first burden that God gives to the Israelites through Malachi, uh, beginning in Malachi 1, verse 1. An oracle, the word of the Lord to Israel through Malachi. I have loved you, said the Lord, but you ask, how have you loved us? The Lord responds, was not Esau Jacob's brother, the Lord says, yet I have loved Jacob, but Esau I have hated and I have turned his mountains into a wasteland and left his inheritance to the desert jackals. Edom may say, though we have been crushed, we will rebuild the ruins. But this is what the Lord Almighty says. They may build, but I will demolish. They will be called the wicked land, a people always under the wrath of the Lord. You will see it with your own eyes and say, great is the Lord, even beyond the borders of Israel. Let us pray. Our God and Father above, we do thank you for the revelation that you have given to us. You have revealed for us your plan of salvation. You have revealed for us the fact that we need salvation. And if you and you have revealed to us how you have accomplished that for us. As we look to this Old Testament prophet, Malachi, we ask that you open our eyes and our ears. Help us to see who you are, who we are, and how Jesus bridges that gap in this passage. Help us to hear the glorious words that you have for us, words that will change us, words that will make us more like sons, the sons that we are. And remind us that we are dependent upon you As we study this word, we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So Malachi is not only the last book in what we know as the Old Testament, but it is probably the last book or one of the last books um, written before the 400 years of silence, the 400 years between the end of the Old Testament and the birth of Jesus. Malachi addresses failings that the Israelites are suffering under as they have returned from Babylon, as they have returned from exile and sought to rebuild uh, the temple, sought to rebuild the homes and sought to rebuild their lives there in Jerusalem. Malachi deals with blemished sacrifices. He deals with priests who are, who are acting unpriestlike and and other issues with the people of Israel. But he opens up with reminding Israel of his love for them. And so that is what we are going to look at today. These first five verses where uh, God says to them, I have loved you. And he shows their love to them by declaring his hatred for Esau. 
And so today we'll look at God's love for Israel contrasted with his hatred for Edom or for Esau and the salvation implications of God's love and his hatred. First up, God opens up this oracle by declaring that he has loved Israel. I have loved you, says the Lord. And the unspoken end to that declaration is, but you have not loved me. And Israel responds to them in this back and forth disputation. Israel responds to God and says, how have you loved us? It's kind of a what have you done for me lately type scenario. Now, from a human standpoint, this may be understandable, at least from a narrow kind of view of where the Israelites were. They had returned out of exile after years of rebellion. God had sent the northern kingdom of Israel into exile through the Assyrian Empire and the southern kingdom of Judah a couple hundred years later into exile through the Babylonian Empire. And and in that sending to exile, the the land went back to a, a state of formlessness and emptiness. The city of Jerusalem, the temple was destroyed and and sat fallow, sat uninhabited for the most part for close to 70 years. And then in three different phases, groups of exiles returned from Babylon to Jerusalem. The first came back and rebuilt their homes and God's house, the temple. The second group came back and rebuilt and re-inhabited. And the third group came back and rebuilt the walls. And yet, even though the prophets had declared that after a time of exile, Israel would return to their former, not only to the land, but to their former glory to be ruled by a Davidic king, there was no glory in Israel. Some of the old timers who came back to see the temple rebuilt wept. Because the glory of Solomon's temple was gone, and even though it had been rebuilt, it was still absent. There was no descent of God's glory and presence upon the temple as there had been when Solomon dedicated the temple when it was first built. They were still politically and economically depressed and oppressed as they lived their lives. And the pagan nations around them, specifically the nation of Edom, who had joined in with the Babylonians to destroy Judah, even though they came from the same father, Isaac. The nations around them were in a time of prosperity, were in a time of what they saw to be blessing. And so as humans, we can understand possibly why the Israelites would look at God and say, How have you loved us? Because we fall in that same trap sometimes, do we not? We think, you know what? I've given my life to Jesus. I've accepted Jesus into my heart. And I look just like Asaph did in Psalm 73. I look at the world around me and the wicked prosper. And I suffer. My righteous friends suffer. People that I know who love God and are called according to His purpose, their life seems to work out to anything but good. And so we are tempted, just like the Israelites, to ask God, how have you loved us? But God doesn't just take a narrow human perspective on His love. God takes an eternal perspective, a spiritual perspective on love, and He takes them back to their own place in history. 
He goes back to Genesis 25. In Genesis 25, Isaac has married Rebekah. And Rebekah has become pregnant with twins. And that pregnancy is described as horrible. She has a fight going on in her belly. The sibling rivalry between Jacob and Esau started in the womb. Those of you who have children, you're familiar with sibling rivalry. Those of you who have watched other people who have children are familiar with sibling rivalry. There is always a one-upmanship between brothers and sisters, between brothers and brothers, between sisters and sisters, or so I'm told. But this turmoil is going on in Rebecca's womb, and she cries out to God, what is going on? Please make it stop. And God comes to her and says, look, there's not only two babies, but there's two nations at war within you. But one day the older will serve the younger. The older will be subject to the younger. God takes them back in the statement, yet I have loved Jacob, but Esau I have hated to prove his love for the Israelites. Now, we get hung up a little bit on this contrast here. Jacob I've loved, Esau I have hated, because much like the Israelites and sometimes ourselves take a very narrow view of God's love or very narrow view of what God is doing in our life, we take a very narrow view of the definition of the word love and the word hate. How did God love Jacob and yet hate Esau in context of Genesis 25. In the ancient Near East, when a couple had children, they hoped for sons. They, they, they didn't hate daughters. They didn't do anything detrimental to daughters, but they hoped for sons because your inheritance, your name, your property, which was supposed to stay in your family into eternity, transferred from father to son. And it's specifically the majority of it transferred from the oldest son to the youngest son. So I have three children. I would divide up my property by four. I would take the monetary value of it, divide it up by four, give two pieces to Gregory and the other two pieces to Lucas and Zachary. Sorry, guys, it's just the way it is. Gregory is the oldest. It's the roll of the dice. But God says no. Actually, taking that one step further, it was the oldest son because he got the larger portion who was considered to be loved. God says, no, in my economy, in the economy of Esau and Jacob, it will be Jacob that is chosen to receive the highest honor, the highest inheritance. See, love and hate in the ancient Near East are covenant words. If I was a strong king and I came to a weaker city, I would give them a choice. Enter into a relationship with me defined by a covenant, a covenant that lists out rules for the relationship, lists out blessings for keeping the relationship, lists out curses for breaking the rules of the relationship. If I came to you and said, I want to, I want to choose you to be in a covenant relationship with me, I would be placing my love upon you. 
But if I came to you and said, I am going to choose you for destruction, I would be placing my hate upon you. Not my love, but my hate. These are covenant words. So how does God in Malachi say that he has hated Esau? He says, I have turned his mountains into a wasteland and left his inheritance to the desert jackals. Edom may say, though we have been crushed, we will rebuild the ruins. But this is what the Lord Almighty says. They may build, but I will demolish. They will be called the wicked land, a people always under the wrath of the Lord. Edom was prosperous at the time that Malachi was speaking to the Israelites. But it wasn't more than 100, maybe 200 years later that a group of Bedouins, a group of nomads called the Nabataeans entered into the land of Edom. Edom, E-D-O-M, is, are the descendants, the nation of Edom are the descendants of Esau. As I mentioned earlier, the descendants of Esau actually helped Babylon to destroy and to kill Israelites when Babylon came in. But a hundred or so years after this passage is given to the Israelites, the Nabataeans come in and they displace the Edomites. They kick them out of their land. Now, these are nomads. They travel from place to place. They don't have a permanent residence, so they don't need cities. So they empty the cities. And while they're living in tents, what what happens if you leave a house for a a month or a year uh, uninhabited? It begins to decay, does it not? It, it, it is amazing how quickly a house will enter into a state of decay once somebody stops living in that house. Cities are the same way. So the cities of the Edomites fell into decay. The nomads were herdsmen. So they had this beautifully green, lush area that they let their flocks just eat until it was nothing but desert. And what God is saying to the Israelites here, the, the Edomites, excuse me, they tried to reestablish themselves in an area in the New Testament. It's called Edomia. It's a little bit in a different place geographically than, than Edom was, but they can never quite get back on their footing again. They can never quite get things back into, into shape. But what about the Israelites? Things were bad for them. But they were reestablished in the land. And that reestablishment in the land lasted for another close to 600 years until they rebelled against God once again and embraced uh, political power and political expediency over being the people of God. And until Jesus came back or came to earth. He hasn't come back yet. Trust me. Until Jesus came. So we see God's love for Israel in that he has chosen them to be his people, not because of anything they did, we're told in Deuteronomy 7, simply because God loved them, simply because God in his sovereignty decided to choose Jacob over Esau. God showed his love by choosing them, by preserving them, by protecting them, even when it seemed like everything in the world was against them. And he shows his hatred, his lack of choosing for blessing of Esau in judgment. In allowing them to fade away and allowing them to be destroyed. 
and making it so that they could not be reestablished. God chose Jacob, but rejected Esau. God loved Jacob, but hated Esau. Now, how does this work into God's love and salvation for us? Paul actually picks up this theme in Romans chapter 9, which we read earlier. He's talking about his brothers and sisters, the Israelites. He's laid out for us in the first eight chapters of Romans this the, the beautiful reality that whether you're a pagan who is involved in the debauchery of paganism, or a legalist who keeps all the rules and hopes in your right in your own personal righteousness. He reminds both of those groups that both of them need the gospel for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And he goes on a couple chapters later to remind them that the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Jesus Christ, our Lord. And then he reminds us later on, actually after this, he says in Romans chapter 10, if we confess with our mouth that Jesus, that God, if we believe in our heart and confess with our mouth that God has raised him from the dead, we shall be saved. Paul has laid out the glory of God's justification, God's salvation of, of sinful humanity, God's choosing to love humans who rebel and reject him. And he comes to chapter nine and he says, but what about the Israelites? What about God's chosen people from before the foundation of the world. And he says this very interesting, can be confusing phrase in verse six. It says, it is not as though God's word had failed for not all who are descended from Israel are Israel. Not everybody descended from Jacob is part of God's people. How does that work? Because for millennia, for for centuries, God's people have been defined by genetics. What does Paul mean? Not everybody who is genetically Israel is Israel. That means that there's a way to be part of the covenant community without actually being a member of the covenant community. You can show up here every Sunday. You can sit under good, solid preaching. You can say all the right words, do all the right things. Sing the songs on key, listen to the prayers, listen to the preaching and still not be a member of God's people. It's not just who we are. It's not just what we do. It's what we believe. And how do we come to belief? This is hard for us. God chooses some and rejects others. What he goes on to say in the rest of those 29 verses that we read earlier. Is it because of anything that I did? Does God look at all of history and say, you know what? Ike's a pretty good guy. I think I'm going to save him. I want him on my team. No, he doesn't say that about me. He doesn't say that about any of you. It goes back to Deuteronomy chapter seven, the same words that he gives to Israel as they're getting ready to enter the promised land. They've wandered for 40 years. They rebelled for 40 years and God's letting them enter the promised land anyway. It's a beautiful picture of our of our own Christian life, is it not? We rebel and wander and yet God accepts us anyway. But in Deuteronomy chapter seven, beginning in verse six, he says, 
For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you out of all the peoples on the face of the earth to be his people, his treasured possession. Now, if he has chosen the Israelites, if he has chosen some people to be his treasured possession, that means he has chosen some people not to be his treasured possession. But why did he do it? Verse 7 of chapter 7 of Deuteronomy. The Lord did not set his affection on you and choose you because you were more numerous than the other peoples. For you were the fewest of all the peoples. But it was because the Lord loved you and kept the oath he swore to your forefathers that he brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the land of slavery, from the power of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Brothers and sisters, God in his sovereignty... Paul says in Romans 9, 16, it does not therefore depend on man's desire or effort, but on God's mercy. Out of his own sovereignty, out of his own desire for glory, God has chosen some for salvation and rejected others. Now, that does not leave us without excuse. Because the reality is, if he had not chosen us for salvation... If he had not worked in love to draw us to himself through the power of the Holy Spirit, each and every one of us in this room would choose hell over heaven. That is the reality. Left to our own devices, we would return hate for hate. We would return what we think of as hate to God for him not choosing us, for him existing. Apart from the power of the Holy Spirit, brothers and sisters, each and every one of us in here would hate God. And we would walk proudly into the gates of hell. But God, in his love, in his mercy, says. There are some people. That I am willing. To die for to take the punishment for their hatred against me. So that they can feel my love. So that they can feel my mercy. So that they can feel the grace of an eternal life in my presence. Rather, in my glorious presence, rather than in my presence of judgment. Not because of anything I did. But because of his mercy. Because of his desire. Because of his love. We have a hard time with hate in our world, at least when it's ascribed to God, because we as a culture and sometimes even as a church are fixated on three words in first John. Three words about God to the exclusion of all the other words about God in the rest of the Bible. We are fixated on God is love. And we're surprised when we read through Malachi or Romans, when we see I hated Esau. It shouldn't surprise us. If we've been reading our Bibles, if we've been studying Jeremiah 44, 4 through 5 and Hosea 9, 15, we're told God hates idolaters. Psalm 5, 5 tells us that God hates evildoers. Psalm 11, 5 tells us that God hates the wicked and those who do violence. God hates those who hate him. 
Now, God showers common love, common grace. The, you know, the sunshine falls on the wicked as well as the righteous. The rain falls on the righteous as well as the wicked. He doesn't, thankfully, take each and every one of us that moment we express our hatred against him for the very first time. Because if that were the case, none of us would have a chance to be saved. But the reality is that God will judge sin. And God will judge sinners. God will judge the hatred against him and he will judge those who hate him. And that judgment is a rejection of people. God chooses some for glory and for salvation and God rejects others. God reminds us in these words, Jacob I loved, Esau I hated, that judgment awaits those who reject him. And his love awaits those who believe. And the call upon you, the call is there for everyone. Do you believe? Have you believed? Have you rested in God's mercy? Let us pray. Our God and Father above, we thank you for your word, what it reveals to us of you, what it reveals to us of ourselves, and what it reveals of how you have showered mercy on those who do not deserve it. Help me to live humbly under the weight of your grace. Help me to live humbly, knowing the depth of my depravity, and yet knowing that your grace, your love goes even deeper. And help each and every one of us to know the joy of our salvation, the joy of your choosing. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.